Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative. That it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, December 20th, 2022, the 699th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast the Substack, the writing, the merch site, and the social media by going to linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So as I mentioned on yesterday's podcast, I am recording this yesterday, but you are listening to it today, which is Tuesday or some later day. But either way, this is the episode for Tuesday, December 20th. So let's knock out a couple of issues and then we will get to Twitter files part seven. 
Now, first, let's talk about the January 6th committee and their referral of charges against President Donald J. Trump. This is from CNN, because when you want the central narrative in its purest, dumbest, most sloganeering form, CNN is a fantastic place to turn. The headline on this article is what's in the House January 6th committee report summary. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol has concluded that former President Donald Trump was ultimately responsible for the insurrection, laying out for the public and the Justice Department a trove of evidence for why he should be prosecuted for multiple crimes. Now, was there an attack on the Capitol by Donald Trump and his supporters? No, of course not. But there were a number of unfortunate and sometimes violent incidents in and around the Capitol that day. And some Trump supporters did end up involved in some of that, which is very unfortunate. And to the extent that any of them actually broke the law, then it is not surprising that they would be prosecuted for that. Nonetheless, Donald Trump wasn't involved in any of that. And so instead, they have to theorize that he is nonetheless responsible for it happening. And the January 6th committee has been a year and a half long investigation to try to turn up some possible evidence that it is all Donald Trump's fault. We have seen them do primetime show after primetime show trying to convince the American public that it was all Donald Trump's fault. But after a year and a half of investigating, they have come no closer to solidifying that case than they were when they started, which is why they simply referred to their trove of evidence that kind of suggests Donald Trump had some role. And that should be enough to make sure that the people can never elect Donald Trump as president ever again. That evidence has led to an overriding and straightforward conclusion. The central cause of January 6th was one man, former President Donald Trump, who many others followed. The committee writes in a summary of its final report released on Monday, none of the events of January 6th would have happened without him. And if that's not proof of guilt, what is? The summary describes in extensive detail how Trump tried to overpower, pressure, and cajole anyone who wasn't willing to help him overturn his election defeat, while knowing that many of his schemes were unlawful. This is just CNN saying this. His relentless arm twisting included election administrators in key states, senior Justice Department leaders, state lawmakers, and others. The report even suggests possible witness tampering with the committee's investigation. Oh, I'm sure they've hammered that one down. The suggestion here is that Donald Trump, in his role as president of the United States of America, is not allowed to take claims of election fraud and malfeasance seriously. He's not allowed to investigate them. He's not allowed to talk to state officials, election administrators, or senior Justice Department leaders about any of that, even if it's just speculation in theory, Donald Trump, for 
even having these conversations and even taking the claims seriously, he is eventually somewhere down the road inciting an insurrection because he's not allowed to take this stuff seriously. And if he does, he's definitely not allowed to investigate it or talk to the American public about any of it, because if he does, well, insurrection. The committee repeatedly uses forceful language to describe Trump's intent that he purposely disseminated false allegations of fraud in order to aid his efforts to overturn the 2020 election and to successfully solicit about $250 million in political contributions. These false claims provoked his supporters to violence on January 6th, according to the committee. Now, a rational observer might say, might think, well, if Trump was disseminating these allegations and their false allegations, and that was the problem with him disseminating them, shouldn't you have to prove that the allegations are false as the January 6th committee investigating this attack on the Capitol? Shouldn't you be able to successfully claim and successfully prove that the allegations of fraud are false? But the committee didn't go with any of that. They simply restate the media claims that the election cases have been thrown out largely for procedural reasons, but not all the election claims were. Some of them were taken quite seriously. And in some of them, the courts actually decided that the election processes put in place for the 2020 election were put in place unconstitutionally and the processes themselves in other places actually violated the constitution in different ways. We saw that in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, for instance, they ruled that the drop boxes and other methods of voting put in place by Mark Zuckerberg's efforts with the center for tech and civic life were unconstitutional from the get go, which means they were unconstitutional when they were used in the 2020 election. A normal person would see that decision and say, hey, well, that was a couple hundred thousand votes that were unconstitutional in that election. So how are you going to tell us that that election was safe and secure and certifiable according to the Constitution? You can't really claim that. So instead they claim, well, it's just all said and done now. But they didn't look at those underlying claims and they didn't establish that Donald Trump's claims about the election were actually false. They just say other people have said these are false. And here we are now with the fake administration in office. Everybody knows that that means the election was just fine. Therefore, we're going to say it was just fine, which makes Donald Trump a liar. The full report based on a thousand plus interviews. Documents collected, including emails, texts, phone records, and a year and a half of investigation by the nine member bipartisan committee will be released Wednesday, along with transcripts and other materials collected in the investigation. Okay, so bipartisan committee by bipartisan, they mean the committee has Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on it. Neither of them are Republicans in any meaningful way, and in a few days, they won't even be in Congress. Adam Kinzinger was so loathsome that he didn't even bother running again, and Liz Cheney got absolutely blown out in her primary by 40 points. The committee was a sham from the beginning. It was not legitimately formed, 
And the Republican Party, the minority, did not get to choose which members sat on the committee, according to Congress's own rules. So the committee is not legitimate, and it's definitely not bipartisan. But bipartisan doesn't mean anything anymore anyway, A, because the Democrat-Republican paradigm is dead and useless, and B, because all bipartisan means is that people with both of those designations, the little D next to their name, the little R next to their name, are working together on something. And that is just about the worst case scenario for the American people. So bipartisan is in no way a good thing. The committee thinks Trump and others committed crimes and is referring them to the DOJ. The House committee lays out a number of criminal statutes it believes were violated in the plots to stave off Trump's defeat and say there's evidence for criminal referrals to the Justice Department for Trump, Trump attorney John Eastman, and quote unquote, they're mad at John Eastman, of course, for his well-supported legal theory that said the vice president could recommend the states taking more time to investigate these very legitimate claims of election fraud, which could be seen by everyone at that time if they only chose to look. But most chose not to look. Most chose just to accept whatever the television told them. And we can see right now that the lame duck Congress is attempting to pass their Electoral Count Act reform in must pass pieces of legislation before they leave town and before this particular congressional session ends, because after that point, there's no way they get what they want. But they're still trying to pass this piece of legislation to take away the opportunity to do exactly what John Eastman was saying Mike Pence had the opportunity to do. The report summary says there's evidence to pursue Trump on multiple crimes, including obstruction of an official proceeding, right? Obstruction of the proceeding. Donald Trump told people to walk peacefully and patriotically and to make their voices heard. And that is inciting the riot. And that's what obstructed the official proceeding. So Donald Trump is in very big trouble because they can definitely prove he did that conspiracy to defraud the United States. Well, his claims are true and he believed them. So even if he was wrong, there was no conspiracy to defraud the United States. But I'm glad to know that that is something the January 6th committee cares about because the January 6th committee has spent a year and a half defrauding the United States, which is exactly what you would expect of a committee featuring Benny Thompson Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, and the biggest public fraud in America, perhaps beyond Joe Biden, Adam Schiff. The committee believes that it is referring evidence to the DOJ that would suggest charges for conspiracy to make false statements. So Donald Trump was trying to convince other people to lie on his behalf, even though his claims are true, and he was asking people to say true things about the real state of the world and about the state of our elections in places like Georgia, for instance, assisting or aiding an insurrection. Well, how did he do that? 
No one knows. Oh, it was because he tried to commandeer the beast, the presidential limousine and take it to the Capitol so that he could join all the armed rioters who just simply weren't armed. Conspiring to injure or impede an officer. What? So his plan was that his supporters would go there and hurt Capitol police officers. Is that it? Got it. Okay. And seditious conspiracy. All of this is ridiculous. The child brains won't care and the media won't care. They believe Donald Trump is guilty of everything you could possibly accuse him of. Make something up. They believe he's guilty for it. The committee also says it has the evidence to refer Eastman on the obstruction charge, and it names him as a co-conspirator in other alleged criminal activity lawmakers have gathered evidence on. In addition, several others are named as being participants in the conspiracies the committee is linking to Trump, including then DOJ attorney Jeffrey Clark and Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, as well as Trump tied lawyers Kenneth Chesbro and Rudy Giuliani. The committee alluded to evidence of criminal obstruction of the House investigation, but the summary does not go into detail about that evidence. Now, this CNN article went up just as the hearings were ending and the report was released. So CNN got an early copy of the report. When did they get it? Was it yesterday? Did they put all this together in one day? Did they read the report and put all this together in one day? Well, certainly competent journalists could have absolutely done that. But who knows? The point is they got the report early. So the report goes out to the media organizations so that the media organizations can create the narrative so that the narrative is inserted immediately after the hearing ends. Oh, you didn't have a chance to watch the hearing. Well, here's everything that happened in full detail. This is exactly what you need to know if what you want to do is agree with the committee at all costs. So we shall see what they have in mind. Will Merrick Garland's DOJ under the illegitimate president, Joseph Robinette Biden, actually attempt to indict or arrest Donald Trump? It seems like that's where they're headed. It will be meaningless. It will be for show. It will be an absolute disaster, but that doesn't mean they won't try it. They are running out of moves. This is among their final moves in this larger game. And the cascade of consequences that will emerge from this move is something that we're just going to have to wait and see. So let's go to the post-millennium. Supreme Court orders Title 42 will stay in place. On Monday, the Supreme Court of the United States issued a stay on the lifting of Title 42, which gave officials the ability to expel illegal immigrants over health concerns and was set to expire on Wednesday. According to the Texas Tribune, immigration officials have used the health order more than two million times to expel migrants. We know that there are millions, maybe five million illegal aliens who have crossed into this country under the illegitimate Biden regime and are here. Title 42 has expelled two million at least already. The ruling comes after a lawsuit filed Monday from 19 GOP led states asking to keep the rules in place as a measure to stave off the impact of Biden's border crisis, which has seen 
2,378,944 encounters with illegal immigrants in the 2022 fiscal year and 1,659,206 in 2021. So that's about 4 million encounters right there. And that does not count all the gotaways, the people who did not have official encounters. Title 42 was implemented under Trump and was created during the COVID pandemic. The U.S. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan ruled in November that Title 42 was to be lifted by December 21st. On Saturday, El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser declared a state of emergency in preparation for the expected surge of illegal immigrants when Title 42 expired. We know the influx on Wednesday will be incredible. It will be huge. On Wednesday, our numbers will go from 2,500 to 4,000, 5,000, maybe 6,000, the mayor added. And he is talking about new illegal aliens coming into the country, into El Paso every day. Biden significantly loosened restrictions along the southern border when he took office in 2021. The humanitarian crisis on the border has seen human beings, as well as fentanyl and other drugs, smuggled across the southern border in record numbers. And of course, Joe Biden is running one of the largest human trafficking operations in history, and he's doing it in coordination with the drug cartels, with the Mexican cartels. Those cartels are, for all intents and purposes, private armies of the global regime, just as they are around the world. And of course, similar human trafficking operations are being run around the world. Remember, they want to create a one world global order. And of course, that will be communism. They have to make everything the same everywhere. That's the goal. No borders, one world, all governed the same. So they move people to where they need people. They determine where people are needed. What kind of people? Well, poor, impoverished people who think that they will be given a better life and a job and a home and medical care. That is what they are promised when NGOs come into their little villages and little towns and cities all across the world and find new people that will agree to be moved around the world to the extent that they're even able to agree. Those NGOs working with global governing bodies like the UN and the UN Migration Program, they bring these people in coordination with that. They move them overseas to Mexico and other countries south of our border where they are received by NGOs and turned over to the cartel. The cartel does the job of moving them up to the southern border and then across where they are handed off to other NGOs and then distributed around the country where they are given housing and medical care and jobs so long as they're controlled all the time. These people survive horrible conditions on their way to cross the border. Many of them don't make it, or at least don't make it in the same condition they were in before they made the journey. People are assaulted, they're raped, they're killed. That includes children. People are kidnapped and held for ransom. And people are forced to do things that they would never have imagined doing. Things they know are evil, things that are soul-destroying. That's before they get to America. And in America, they are given labor intensive jobs and long hours, and then they are exploited for their political power. They are registered to vote 
and their votes are cast for them. Someone please tell me how this is not a slave trade. This is a slave trade being run by the illegitimate president, Joe Biden, on behalf of the global regime. But now let's move to Twitter files part seven, which people are already saying is the most explosive Twitter files release so far. The FBI and the Hunter Biden laptop, how the FBI and intelligence community discredited factual information about Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings, both after and before the New York Post revealed the contents of his laptop on October 14th, 2020. In Twitter files, part six, we saw the FBI relentlessly seek to exercise influence over Twitter, including over its content, its users, and its data. In Twitter files number seven, we present evidence pointing to an organized effort by representatives of the intelligence community, the IC, aimed at senior executives at news and social media companies to discredit leaked information about Hunter Biden before and after it was published. The story begins in December 2019, when a Delaware computer store owner named John Paul MacIsaac contacts the FBI about a laptop that Hunter Biden had left with him. On December 9th, 2019, the FBI issues a subpoena for and takes Hunter Biden's laptop, and that is attached to the tweet. By August 2020, MacIsaac still had not heard back from the FBI even though he had discovered evidence of criminal activity. And so he emails Rudy Giuliani, who was under FBI surveillance at the time. In early October, Giuliani gives it to the New York Post. Shortly before 7 p.m. Eastern on October 13th, this is 2020, Hunter Biden's lawyer, George Messiris, emails J.P. McIsaac. Hunter and Maziris had learned from the New York Post that its story about the laptop would be published the next day. And here's the email from Maziris. He writes to J.P. MacIsaac. Thank you for speaking with me tonight. As I indicated, I am a lawyer for Hunter Biden, and I appreciate you reviewing your records on this matter. Thank you. Simple. At 9.22 Eastern. FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan sends 10 documents to Twitter's then head of site integrity, Yoel Roth, through Teleporter, a one-way communications channel from the FBI to Twitter. That's very interesting. Just one-way communication. Here's our portal. The FBI puts it in. This goes to Twitter. Now Twitter has it. Chan writes in the email, Twitter folks, heads up. I will be sending a teleporter link for you to download 10 documents. It is not spam. Please confirm receipt when you get it. The next day, October 14th, 2020, the New York Post runs its explosive story, revealing the business dealings of President Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Every single fact in it was accurate. Every single fact in the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop was accurate at no time. Was the laptop Russian disinformation or was the New York Post disseminating disinformation or misinformation by reporting it? They had the story nailed down. And yet, within hours, Twitter and other social media companies censor the New York Post article, preventing it from spreading and more importantly, undermining its credibility in the minds of many Americans. 
Why is that? What exactly happened? On December 2nd, Matt Taibbi described the debate inside Twitter over its decision to censor a wholly accurate article. Since then, we have discovered new info that points to an organized effort by the Intel community to influence Twitter and other platforms. First, it's important to understand that Hunter Biden earned tens of millions of dollars in contracts with foreign businesses, including ones linked to China's government, for which Hunter offered no real work. And Schellenberger links to an interview with investigative journalist Peter Schweitzer, who breaks down some of Hunter's dealings. This is good, though. This tweet itself is good for people who are still pretending that the Hunter Biden laptop issue is primarily about naked pictures of Hunter and Hunter doing drugs and Hunter acquiring prostitutes. That's not what the big deal is. Finally, something of substance is being put in the faces of the broader Twitter audience, which has remained largely ignorant to pretty much everything that's happened in the last three years. And yet during all of 2020, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies repeatedly primed Yoel Roth to dismiss reports of Hunter Biden's laptop as a Russian hack and leak operation. This is from a sworn declaration by Roth given in December 2020, and he links the declaration. Here it is. Since 2018, I have had regular meetings with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and industry peers regarding election security. During these weekly meetings, the federal law enforcement agencies communicated that they expected hack and leak operations by state actors might occur in the period shortly before the 2020 presidential election, likely in October. I was told in these meetings that the intelligence community expected that individuals associated with political campaigns would be subject to hacking attacks and that material obtained through those hacking attacks would likely be disseminated over social media platforms, including Twitter. These expectations of hack and leak operations were discussed throughout 2020. I also learned in these meetings that there were rumors that a hack and leak operation would involve Hunter Biden. They did the same to Facebook, according to CEO Mark Zuckerberg. And Schellenberger links to a clip from the Joe Rogan experience that many of you are probably familiar with, but here it is. Background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was the, we, we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of, of um, uh, uh, that's similar to that. Were the FBI warnings of a Russian hack and leak operation relating to Hunter Biden based on any new intel? No, they weren't. Through our investigations, we did not see any similar competing intrusions to what happened in 2016 admitted FBI agent Elvis Chan in sworn deposition from November 29th, 2022. So this is just a few weeks ago. And Schellenberger includes a bit of that declaration. Here is one of the questions to Elvis Chan. Well, did you do it more than once? 
I did it more. Yes. I warned the companies about a potential for hack and dump operations from the Russians and the Iranians on more than one occasion, although I cannot recollect how many times. Did anybody else at the FBI talk about hack and dump Russian operations? From my recollection, other senior officials, to include Section Chief Demlo, likely mentioned the possibility of hack and dump operations. Indeed, Twitter executives repeatedly reported very little Russian activity. For example, on September 24th, 2020, Twitter told FBI it had removed 345 largely inactive accounts linked to previous coordinated Russian hacking attempts. They had little reach and low follower counts. In fact, Twitter debunked false claims by journalists of foreign influence on its platform. Yoel Roth writes in his response to Elvis Chan, we haven't seen any evidence to support that claim. Our review thus far shows a small scale domestic troll effort that was amplified in some creative ways by real people, but not a significant bot or foreign angle. After the FBI asks about a Washington Post story on alleged foreign influence in a pro-Trump tweet, Twitter's Roth says the article makes a lot of insinuations, but we saw no evidence that that was the case here. And in fact, a lot of strong evidence pointing in the other direction. It's not the first time that Twitter's Roth has pushed back against the FBI in January 2020. Roth resisted FBI efforts to get Twitter to share data outside the normal search warrant process. And here's an email from the FBI's Elvis Chan. The name to whom he is writing is redacted. It's not Yoel Roth, but they do include a response to Yoel Roth. Chan writes, hi, redacted. My colleagues at the fort had a query for you. The fort. He capitalizes fort in this email. That sounds like he's referring to a military or intel institution. You got to wonder which one it is. And he goes on. I've provided it to you below the query. He means a few years ago, Twitter said they would no longer provide their data to members of the IC. My colleagues wanted to know if that policy has changed or if you would be willing to change it. My colleagues are currently contracting with a vendor for an analytic tool for open source intelligence, only publicly available data. The commercial version of this tool includes the Twitter data feed. However, the feed was disabled because the vendor said they did not want to violate their terms of service with Twitter. My colleagues are wondering if Twitter would be open to revising its terms of service to allow this vendor to continue having access to the Twitter feed. My colleagues are happy to meet in person to discuss this issue with you if you'd like. And that's really something, isn't it? His colleagues, the FBI agent Elvis Chan's colleagues at the fort wanted to know if Twitter would change its terms of service so they could continue supplying the intelligence community with the data that they were requesting and that they needed to run this analytic tool. Yoel Roth writes back, seemingly to whoever the name redacted person was, it seems like that person is the same in both of these emails. And so he writes, hey, to whoever this person was, as discussed, here's my suggested response. Of course, feel free to tweak and edit 
but I tried to hit on the major points. At this point, we don't think a call directly with your colleague at the fort is the best path forward. As a rule, we're not able to directly discuss data licensing relationships with third parties, such as the customers of our data customers, both due to confidentiality reasons and limited information on our end about the business decisions that may have led one of our customers to decline to provide services to the government. We also have a long-standing policy prohibiting the use of our data products and APIs for surveillance and intelligence gathering purposes, which we would not deviate from. Ultimately, we want to be good partners to government and help combat our shared threats, but the best path for NSA or any part of government to request information about Twitter users or their content is in accordance with valid legal process. The NSA, huh? Well, that's very interesting. The NSA and the fort, and they want to be able to surveil American citizens. Yoel Roth mentions that as one of the concerns. So how many elements of our intelligence community are surveilling American citizens? Pressure had been growing, writes Michael Schellenberger. And he includes another email here. He highlights this part. We have seen a sustained, if uncoordinated, effort by the intelligence community to push us to share more information and change our API policies. They are probing and pushing everywhere they can. Time and again, FBI asks Twitter for evidence of foreign influence, and Twitter responds that they aren't finding anything worth reporting. We haven't yet identified activity that we'd typically refer to you or even flag as interesting in the foreign influence context. That's Yoel Roth from another email addressed to Elvis and team. Despite Twitter's pushback, the FBI repeatedly requests information from Twitter that Twitter has already made clear it will not share outside of normal legal channels. Then in July 2020, the FBI's Elvis Chan arranges for temporary top secret security clearances for Twitter executives so that the FBI can share information about threats to the upcoming elections. So they are going to give security clearances to Twitter executives so that the FBI and the intelligence community can filter them information with top secret markings Classified so only people with security clearances are able to read them. On August 11th, 2020, the FBI's Chan shares information with Twitter's Roth relating to the Russian hacking organization APT28 through FBI's secure one-way communications channel, Teleporter. And the redactions in this email are interesting because Yoel Roth is not redacted Every other recipient of this email is redacted, and the email itself is addressed to Alcon. Now, the other redacted name in the prior email from Elvis Chan was addressed to a name that pretty clearly starts with an A. So I have to wonder if those are potentially the same addressee for these emails. Here's the email. Alcon. In advance of this week's meeting, I'm going to be sending you three documents through an FBI application called Teleporter. You will get a link, and he supplies the email address from where the link will be coming. 
which will expire in 24 hours. Please download the documents when you get a chance. The documents will not denote the actors, so I'm providing them here. A. FITF. Topic. B. APT28. C. Sandworm. We will be discussing A and B, but don't have anything additional for C at this point. Thanks. So, who's Alcon? Where is the fort? And what in the world is Sandworm? Recently, Yoel Roth told Kara Swisher that he had been primed to think about the Russian hacking group APT28. Maybe this is Apartment 28. Do Russians say apartment? Before the news of the Hunter Biden laptop came out. And here's the clip included by Schellenberger. Learn about DC leaks. And we learn about the intersection between APT28, a unit of Russian military intelligence, a hacking group. And so the morning of the Hunter Biden story in the New York Post happens. And it was weird, right? We didn't know what to believe. We didn't know what was true. There was, there was smoke. And ultimately for me, uh, it didn't reach a place where I was comfortable removing this content from Twitter. But it set off every single one of my finely tuned APT28 hack and leak campaign alarm right, bells. So it looked possibly probably. It, everything about it looked you like a hack not- and leak. So basically what the 51 former intelligence officials said. They had absolutely no evidence, but it has all the hallmarks of a Russian disinformation operation. And you got to understand that Yoel Roth's ability to detect that has been so finely tuned by all this work he has done with the FBI and the intelligence community. They've been priming him for this for a very long time by that point. And he believes that his system is finely tuned to the point where when he hears 51 former intelligence officials say it, he knows himself that they're already telling the truth about the fact that they have no evidence, but it seems like the thing we want it to seem like. So let's just tell everybody that in August, 2020 FBI's Chan asks Twitter, does anyone there have top secret clearance? When someone mentions Jim Baker, Chan responds, I don't know how I forgot him. An odd claim given Chan's job is to monitor Twitter, not to mention that they work together at the FBI. Who is Jim Baker? He's former general counsel of the FBI from 2014 to 2018 and one of the most powerful men in the U.S. intelligence community. Baker has moved in and out of government for 30 years, serving stints at CNN, Bridgewater, a $140 billion asset management firm, and the Brookings Institution, a globalist-funded left-wing think tank. And Schellenberger includes Baker's CV. His work history also includes Verizon, a group called JKV Advisors, and the R Street Institute, which he describes as a nonpartisan, nonprofit, center-right think tank. So he must know a bunch of rhinos, too. As general counsel of the FBI, Baker played a central role in making the case internally for an investigation of Donald Trump. Baker wasn't the only senior FBI executive involved in the Trump investigation to go to Twitter. Don Burton, the former deputy chief of staff to FBI head James Comey, who initiated the investigation of Trump, 
joined Twitter in 2019 as director of strategy. As of 2020, there were so many former FBI employees, BU alumni is what they called them, bureau alumni, working at Twitter that they had created their own private Slack channel and a crib sheet to onboard new FBI arrivals. So the FBI unit inside Twitter actually got excited when more FBI personnel came over to work at Twitter. They had their own special onboarding process. Efforts continued to influence Twitter's Yoel Roth. In September 2020, Roth participated in an Aspen Institute tabletop exercise on a potential hack and dump operation relating to Hunter Biden. The goal was to shape how the media covered it and how social media carried it. And the documents attached here are actually pretty interesting. It's totally worth it to go check out these documents as you're listening, pause and go look, or after you listen, whatever. These are worth taking a look at. But the point here is that in September 2020, before the rest of the world knew anything about the Hunter Biden laptop, the globalist conference, the Aspen Institute was running a tabletop exercise. That's what they always call these things. We're going to create an imaginary situation and then we're just going to war game it. We're just going to see how that situation might play out and you will pretend to be the media. You'll be Twitter. We'll be the CIA. We'll be the Biden campaign. Let's just see how all this works. You actually saw them do the same thing with the transition integrity project. Same sort of thing. They did this for the pandemics. We know they did it with the SPARS pandemic narrative operation, that war game that they did at Johns Hopkins Center for Medical Security. This is what they do. They have these situations that they know they will create or that will happen, and then they'll figure out exactly how they need to communicate it to get what they want, to make the public believe their narrative. The Transition Integrity Project was focused on the after election period. The pandemic war games were focused on how to control the public once the pandemic was announced. And here we have in September 2020, before the laptop ever came out, before it was known by the general public at all, we have them wargaming how to respond to this exact scenario. The organizer was Vivian Schiller, the former CEO of NPR, National Public Radio, legitimate state media. Also, the former head of news at Twitter, the former general manager of The New York Times and the former chief digital officer of NBC News. Attendees included Meta, Facebook's head of security policy and the top national security reporters for The New York Times, The Washington Post and others. Isn't that incredible? They have the media come in so that the media also gets to learn how it's going to be handled in case something like this happens. By mid-September 2020, Channon Roth had set up an encrypted messaging network so employees from the FBI and Twitter could communicate. They also agreed to create a virtual war room for all the internet industry plus FBI and ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. So this is the big tech industry. All the platforms can communicate with the FBI and ODNI. They're going to have a virtual war room so they can handle things on the fly. Then on September 15th, 2020, the FBI's Laura Demlo, who heads up the Foreign Influence Task Force, and Elvis Chan, 
request to give a classified briefing for Jim Baker without any other Twitter staff, such as Yoel Roth, present. On October 14th, shortly after the New York Post publishes its Hunter Biden laptop story, Roth says it isn't clearly violative of our hacked materials policy, nor is it clearly in violation of anything else, but adds this feels a lot like a somewhat subtle leak operation. So there's nothing wrong with the story, but you got to remember, Yoel Roth has a very, very highly tuned radar. He knows when something has all the hallmarks of a Russian disinformation operation. In response to Roth, Baker repeatedly insists that the Hunter Biden materials were either faked, hacked, or both, and a violation of Twitter policy. Baker does so over email and in a Google Doc on October 14th and 15th. And yet it's inconceivable Baker believed the Hunter Biden emails were either fake or hacked. The New York Post had included a picture of the receipt signed by Hunter Biden and an FBI subpoena showing that the agency had taken possession of the laptop in December 2019. Again, there was no doubt about whether or not the laptop was real. And Jim Baker certainly knew it. As for the FBI, it would likely have taken a few hours for it to confirm that the laptop had belonged to Hunter Biden. Indeed, it only took a few days for journalist Peter Schweitzer to prove it. And Schellenberger includes this clip. When the laptop dropped in uh, 2020, I had no idea where it came from. I didn't know if it was real. But what I did was I took the files on the Hunter Biden laptop and I compared it to bodies of information that we knew were absolutely true. So, for example, the Secret Service, again, at the request of the U.S. Senate Committee, had released Hunter Biden's travel records. So we were able to take the laptop and say, when he says he's in Dubai, does that correspond with the Secret Service travel records? If he's emailing somebody and saying, I'm in Hong Kong, does that line up? In each and every case, it lined up. Then we compared the laptop to the suspicious activity reports, the SARS reports. Uh, when the emails referenced $5 million being wired uh, to Hunter Biden's business, does that correspond with the SARS? And again, it lined up completely. And the laptop really came out at about the same time as the Secret Service travel logs and the wire transfers. So it really would not have been possible for somebody to you know, create thousands of emails simultaneously to demonstrate it. Then the final thing we did, Michael, is we looked at Hunter Biden's laptop emails and we compared them with a collection that we had received from Hunter Biden's business partners, a guy named Bevan Cooney, who's in jail. He shared his Gmail account with us and we, we looked at it. The Hunter Biden laptops that have Bevan Cooney correspondence on them, do they actually line up with Bevan Cooney's Gmail account? And again, they did 100%. Now, I was able to do this in Florida with my researchers. The New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS News, ABC News could have done the same thing, but they were not interested in this story. They did not pursue this story. If you had told me that, that information would come forward that Jimmy Carter's family or Ronald Reagan's family was receiving tens of millions of dollars from Russian businesses that were linked to the KGB, it would have set off alarm bells, rightfully so, to all kinds of news outlets. That's really the equivalent of what we're talking about here. And yet, 
the media somehow convinced themselves that this was not an important or an interesting story. By 10 a.m., Twitter execs had bought into a wild hack and dump story, and he attaches an email from Yoel Roth. Hi, folks. Lots of good discussion of this case in the doc, sharing a bit of additional context about why we're recommending this action. The key factor informing our approach is consensus from experts monitoring election security and disinformation that this looks a lot like a hack and leak that learned from the 2016 WikiLeaks approach and our policy changes. The suggestion from experts, which rings true, is there was a hack that happened separately and they loaded the hacked materials on the laptop that magically appeared at a repair shop in Delaware and was coincidentally reviewed in a very invasive way by someone who coincidentally then handed the materials to Rudy Giuliani. Given the severe risks we saw in this space in 2016, we are recommending a warning plus deamplification pending further information. Now, that sounds like a pretty vast conspiracy theory. There's there's a lot of stuff being suggested there. The materials were hacked, put on another laptop and then left at John Paul McIsaac's computer repair shop with Hunter Biden's signature. But it was still all hacked. And the coincidences around Rudy Giuliani And the very invasive way someone looked at the contents of the laptop, and of course, that's someone they're talking about, is J.P. McIsaac. All of that suggests for sure Russian disinformation. I mean, if all of that is true, and there's absolutely no way for Yoel Roth to know that's true. He goes on. If additional information emerges that establishes the origins of the materials more conclusively, we could either reverse this action and remove the warning or escalate our enforcement should it cross the line fully into hacked materials. We recognize that the product experience of the warning label is less than ideal and will surface that feedback with the experience team again as evidence for why we need more robust URL management options. Based on a discussion with Vidya, We'll move forward with this action once we get sign-off from comms. At 3.30 p.m. that same day, October 14th, Baker arranges a phone conversation with Matthew J. Perry in the office of the general counsel of the FBI. The influence operation persuaded Twitter execs that the Hunter Biden laptop did not come from a whistleblower. One linked to a Hill article based on a WAPO article from October 15th which falsely suggested that Giuliani's leak of the laptop had something to do with Russia. So they're going by news articles about other news articles, and that's all the proof they need to suggest that everything else is true. There is evidence that FBI agents have warned elected officials of foreign influence with the primary goal of leaking the information to the news media. This is a political dirty trick used to create the perception of impropriety. In 2020, the FBI gave a briefing to Senator Grassley and Senator Ron Johnson, claiming evidence of Russian interference into their investigation of Hunter Biden. The briefing angered the senators who say it was done to discredit their investigation. And Ron Johnson still talks passionately about that. He knows that that briefing happened so that the briefing and the contents of that briefing could be leaked to the news media. And the news media would then report 
that as true. So whatever Johnson and Grassley are investigating is the product of Russian influence. That's what goes out to the American public. And the only premise for that going out to the American public is that the FBI scheduled this meeting with them and had this briefing to create that story. This is one of the things the FBI does. That's the political dirty trick that's being talked about here. And Schellenberger highlights a piece of the letter from Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson to Nikki Flores at the FBI and Bradley Benavides at the FBI. Here's the highlighted excerpt. With respect to the substance of the briefing, it consisted primarily of information that we already knew and information unconnected to our Biden investigation. We made clear to you at the briefing that it was not relevant to the substance of our work. In response, you stated that the FBI is not attempting to, quote, quash, curtail or interfere, end quote, in the investigation in any way. We also made clear our concern that the briefing would be subject to a leak that would shed a false light on the focus of our investigation. Indeed, on May 1st, 2021, the Washington Post did exactly that. And so did the other inaccurate media articles during the course of our investigation, which falsely labeled our investigation as advancing Russian disinformation. So the FBI stages the briefing and gives this briefing for that exact outcome for the media to spread a false story. Does this sound like honest people doing their job for the good of the country and its people? Of course not. Notably, then FBI general counsel Jim Baker was investigated twice in 2017 and 2019 for leaking information to the news media. So Baker himself is the target of investigations about leaking information from the FBI to the media. And this goes all the way back through his participation in the Russia hoax initially. And Schellenberger cites a quote from a Politico article with the headline, ex-FBI general counsel faced criminal leak probe. This is Twitter's deputy general counsel, Jim Baker, who was present at Twitter this entire time. He was being investigated for criminal behavior in his leaks. This is Mark Meadows that they quote, you're saying he's under criminal investigation. That's why you're not letting him answer. Yes. So that's Jim Baker, the same Jim Baker. In the end, the FBI's influence campaign aimed at executives at news media, Twitter, and other social media companies worked. They censored and discredited the Hunter Biden laptop story. By December 2020, Baker and his colleagues even sent a note of thanks to the FBI for its work. And these people, of course, are all very proud of what they're doing. They have their task, their influence operation. They're doing it because they say and their supporters say that this is what's necessary to save the country. We cannot allow Donald Trump to ever be president again. You heard Sam Harris say it all out loud. Anything, anything was worth it. Doesn't matter if you break the law. Doesn't matter what's on that laptop. Remember, he said doesn't matter to him whether or not Hunter Biden has the bodies of dead children in his basement and there's proof of it on the laptop, none of it matters because Donald Trump cannot be allowed to be president again. But we wouldn't go so far as to steal the election. 
And anyone who says otherwise is a domestic terrorist and we'll put the FBI on them so they can't say it. But we're not doing it to steal the election. The election is sacred. Our democracy is sacred, which is why we have to destroy it in order to preserve it. The FBI's influence campaign may have been helped by the fact that it was paying Twitter millions of dollars for its staff time. I am happy to report we have collected $3,415,323 since October 2019, reports an associate of Jim Baker in early 2021. So it would seem that at this point, anyone claiming that Twitter was operating as a private company needs to let that go forever. The Level of involvement, the secret portals, the constant emails, the meetings, the weekly meetings, the Aspen Institute, and whatever they did with Yoel Roth to finally tune his discernment so that he could find a Russian hacking operation wherever it exists. All of that isn't enough to show that the government and the private company were working together, that the private company was working as an agent, as an actor of the government, of the state. That's not enough. Well, fine. That's not enough. Well, now we have payments to Twitter for their work on all of these matters in coordination with the government. And the pressure from the FBI on social media platforms continues. In August 2022, Twitter execs prepared for a meeting with the FBI, whose goal was, quote, to convince us to produce on more FBI EDRs. EDRs are an emergency disclosure request, a warrantless search. And here is the attached email. Team, I had an advanced prep call today with redacted of the FBI for your 9-6 meeting with them. Here are some key takeaways. And remember, this email is not even four months old. Bullet points. First one, attending on the FBI side will be name redacted, plus people from NTOC and perhaps others from violent crimes at headquarters. Number two, their goal in the meeting is to convince us to produce on more FBI EDRs. They will try to do this by having NTOC educate us on the threats they are seeing, their procedures and processes for responding to tips and what their standards are. For when they seek EDRs, they plan on bringing statistics on our rate of compliance, which they labeled variable and several forehead knockers, i.e. situations where in the FBI view, there is no reason why we would not have complied. And the final bullet, they repeatedly emphasize Twitter's lower level of compliance in comparison with other platforms. I kindly emphasized back that repeatedly stressing that to our team is not going to be a good strategy to move the needle in their direction. So the other platforms at this point in late summer of this year were more compliant than even Twitter in terms of fulfilling these requests, these emergency disclosure requests, basically performing on behalf of the FBI warrantless searches against American citizens. These bullets make it seem like this will be a confrontational meeting, which I do not think it will be. 
Instead, I get the feeling that they are genuinely baffled and frustrated that their rate of success, as they say, is so low at Twitter. On our side, I think it could be helpful to have some statistics at our fingertips about how the FBI has far and away a greater rate of production than anyone else. I assume this is true. So they're having a lot of other requests for information from Twitter. Do those other requests constitute warrantless searches the way these requests from the FBI do? It might also be helpful to get a sense of the reasons we are denying their requests. Matt suggested it was our high requirement of imminence, which is the narrative I expect his team will push. So it would be interesting to see if that's actually the issue or if it's something else. I realize no one has time to do anything extra. So these are just nice to haves, not must haves. You are all perfectly fine to just go into the meeting and listen and say, thanks so much for your input and leave. But if you have interest in countering their version of the facts, it would probably be helpful to do a little digging on our side. Thanks so much. In response to the Twitter files revelation of high level FBI agents at Twitter, Jim Jordan said, I have concerns about whether the government was running a misinformation operation on we the people. Anyone who reads the Twitter files, regardless of their political orientation, should share those concerns. And that, my friends, is absolutely true. You can see the government combining with corporate elements to directly violate the constitutional rights of each and every American and by virtue of that, their basic human rights. This is where we are. This is where people like me have said that we are for well over two years now. And here is all of the evidence provided to the general public in a very easy to understand format and delivered in small doses. Now, again, I don't know what's going to come from any of this. But I do know that everyone on their side of things is freaking out across the board, which is why we're seeing embarrassing displays like the one we saw on Monday from the January 6th unselect committee. You can expect a lot more distractions this week and next week because they want people's holiday conversations to be consumed with all of this central narrative nonsense in hopes that people won't be getting together and talking about what has really happened to this country and the true state of societal danger we are actually in. Now, again, I look at all of this as part of the process of disclosure and exposure. I believe very powerful people know all of this and are working to combat this. And we, all of us are doing our part in doing that. I am extremely optimistic about the future. That being said, it is absolutely critical that the people we are around over this holiday season do know this is the reality that we face. Our government is provably in league with different corporate entities different global entities, the intelligence community, and whoever to oppress the American people and silence their voices. And that cannot be allowed to continue and it cannot be allowed to be ignored. So I will do my best to get some episodes up this week and next week. I'm going to be on and off 
due to the holiday season. Can't just have my family in the other room while I record podcasts and live streams and make fun of communists on Twitter all day. But that said, I will be back sometime soon at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started It's hell!